So before we dive into this passage, this story, and it is one of the most beloved stories in all of Scripture, before we see Jesus walking on water, his footprints on the Sea of Galilee, I'm going to read a different reading, a poem outside the Bible, on a different set of footprints. And perhaps this is a poem that we've heard before. Perhaps this poem is hanging up around our house. Perhaps this poem is something that we've shared with other people. Perhaps, I will even say it, outside of the Bible, this poem has spoken to us more than any other man-made, man-written poem. This poem is called Footprints in the Sand. How many of us, I'm just curious, have heard of this? Okay, a good amount. Listen to this poem. It's a beautiful analogy. This is how it goes. One night, I dreamed a dream. As I was walking along the beach with my Lord, across the dark sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me and one to my Lord. After the last scene of my life flashed before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand. I noticed that at many times along the path of my life, especially at the very lowest and saddest times, there was only what? One set of footprints. This really troubled me, so I asked the Lord about it. Lord, you said once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I noticed that during the saddest and most troubled times of my life, there was only one set of footprints. I don't understand why, when I needed you the most, you would leave me. The Lord whispers, my precious child, I love you and I will never leave you. Never ever during your trials or your testings. When you only saw one set of footprints, it was because then was the time that I was carrying you. Many people can relate to this poem. Many people resonate with this poem because perhaps during times of trial, hardship, when it feels like we're by ourselves, when it feels like God is not close, the actual reality is he's carrying us the whole way. Now, this poem is something that not only, I think, uh, leads and lends itself to understanding today's passage, but we are going to revisit the poem at the end of today's passage because I think there is a deeper biblical truth than even the footprints in the sand teach us. And that's why we're coming to God's word to understand not the footprints in the sand, but the one who walked on the water. John chapter 6, verse 16. Friends, I love studying the Bible, and I love studying it with you. So let's all look at the scriptures, John 6, verse 16, and hear the word of the Lord. When evening came, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, went down to the sea, verse 17, got into the boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Let's take a break right there. Remember where we've been. You remember from last week's study that Jesus Christ revealed his power of provision in the miracle of multiplying the bread and the fish. Now in today's study, we're going to see not just Jesus' miracle of provision, 
but the miracle of his power over creation as he walks on the wind and the waves. It is not by accident that as Jesus stood before the masses, as he took a small boy's meal and multiplied it and fed not only 5,000 men, but also women and children, tens of thousands of people, that when the masses wanted to not just ask him, not just beseech him, but to make him their king, Jesus had a different path. No, he wanted to reveal that his crown wasn't given to him by men, but his crown was given to him by God. That he wouldn't take the path of political power. No, he would take a different path because we need a spiritual battle to be won. So he walks away from the masses. He walks away from the crowds and the the praising public. And he gets alone and private with his disciples to reveal his true power, to reveal his identity. So that's where we pick up the story. And what we see here in the story is that the language and the imagery is intentional. At some point, as the disciples were retreating from the crowds and from the masses, it would seem that Jesus also left them. So when it says it was dark, We are supposed to understand that in the presence of darkness is also the absence of Christ. We pick up this story where the disciples, many of whom are fishermen, they feel comfortable out on the wind, out on the waves, out in a boat. And yet the Sea of Galilee was a sea and a body of water that was notorious for storms and squalls. The Sea of Galilee is actually 600 feet below sea level. So what would happen is the cool air from the wind, uh, from the hills and the mountains, would rush down into the warm water of the lake, displacing it, churning it, and then all of a sudden these storms would come out of nowhere, sometimes leading to squalls. So even though these were trained fishermen, even though these were men that were familiar with being out on the water, familiar with sailing, the wind picks up and the storm begins to become very, very intimidating. But what they did not expect, no, what they did not anticipate was that their hearts would truly be more frightened, not by the wind picking up, not by the waves getting higher, not by the boat shaking, but by the one who's going to be walking on the water. Yes, the first time you're going to hear These disciples being afraid is not in relation to the storm, but the one who has power over the storm. And that's what verse 19 tells us. Verse 19, all eyes back on scripture. Verse 19 says, when they had rowed about three to four miles, how far out? Three to four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. Full stop, pause, amazing. If this was getting text today, If the Bible came through not only scripture, but text messages, there would be all kinds of emojis with big eyes and big smiles. And oh my goodness, I can't believe this. If God would inspire emojis, and I'm not sure he would. So let's keep reading. (laughs) When they rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And what does it say? Does it say they were elated? Does it say they were excited? They say, wow, that is really, really swell and neat, Jesus says they were frightened. In fact, in, in this account, in the Gospel of John, 
when it talks about the disciples being frightened, it only talks about it in reference to Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Now, clearly, they were startled. I'm sure they were frightened by the wind and the waves, by the storm. If you've ever been out on a boat in the storm, it is very, very startling and frightening. But no, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the first time we hear about them being frightened is not in relation or connection to the storm, but in relation to Jesus who is walking out on the waves. Now, there will be some liberal scholars, some secular religious historians that will say, okay, well, this probably wasn't Jesus literally walking on water. It was probably he just found a sandbar. He just found a sandbar and he's walking on the water and this is the moral of this is somehow that we should trust God. But the eyewitness historical account said this was three to four miles out. There's no sandbars three to four miles out. In fact, would they be frightened of Jesus standing on a sandbar? Would they be amazed by that? No, clearly, not only the historical record, but also their personal reaction tells us that this is a supernatural miracle. Now, later on, I wonder if the disciples, when they were thinking about the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the Torah, perhaps they were thinking about Job and the Psalms. Job and the Psalms where the sea stands for chaos and disorder. And now here in the New Testament, Jesus stands on the sea to still the chaos and disorder, not just of the sea, but what? Of the disciples' hearts. Perhaps they also thought of Genesis chapter 1, where the Spirit of God hovered on the waters. Now here in John chapter 6, it's the Son of God walking on the water. In fact, the Gospel of John begins with a declaration of Christ's divinity and his deity that he is God over all. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God, and it was through the Word that God made everything. So what do we see here? We see not only a prophet who has power over water, we see the Creator who has control over his creation. And that's why R.C. Sproul is right to say this. He says, Jesus, cloaked in mortality, Jesus, veiled in humanity, did what no human being could ever possibly do. He strode across the, street, uh, the sea and the waters supernaturally supported him. This is a miracle. And we get a window, not just into the miraculous power of Jesus, but we get a window into the identity of Jesus. And as we anticipate the next verse, there are three important insights into God's nature, his character, that we want to take away. Number one, the disciples stopped fearing, and this is not by accident. It's very, very applicable for us today. The disciples stopped fearing the greatness of the storm and started to fear the one that's greater than the storm. Number two, with this display of power, the disciples had every single right to be afraid. They should be afraid. But because it's Jesus, they have no reason to be afraid. You understand that? It's kind of hard to wrap our mind around it, but it's the good gospel truth. Number three, in the presence of God, we're talking about God, right? Remember this, friends? <laughs> right? How many of us gather for church and we forget, oh yeah, it's about God. God, the God. 
the God that created everything, the God that is simultaneously holding every single atom in our body, every single atom in that cushy church chair, as well as every single atom in the furthest, most distant star. That God. Yeah, he's big. We should be praying for our friends down in Florida right now. We should be praying for all those victims that are going to be impacted by this hurricane. They're getting a window into the power of nature. And that's just in one part of our country, in one part of this small planet, not in light of all the universe. Friends, we come to church to be in awe of God. Sometimes our God is too small. So the third takeaway here is that in the presence of God, fear is natural because of his power. But fear is unwarranted because of his grace. I like how C.S. Lewis put it. Anyone ever hear of C.S. Lewis? Perhaps if you've not heard of his uh, name, perhaps you've heard some of his works. Uh, One of his most beloved and celebrated works is the Chronicles of Narnia, specifically the book that is called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a story about some young children who are magically whisked away through this wardrobe into a mythical land called Narnia. And of course, all of it's an analogy for the Christian life, for the Christian journey. And as they're whisked away into this adventure in Narnia, they see that Narnia is under the control of the White Witch and in a perpetual, seemingly endless winter. But they're all waiting, not just for the people, but for all the creatures. And in this story, the creatures can talk, they can think. All creation is longing for the return of the king. His name is Aslan. But Aslan is no man. Aslan is a what? Do you know? A lion. He's a lion. So there's one story between one of the characters, Susan, and her interaction with Mr. Beaver. Mr. Beaver can think. Mr. Beaver can talk. Mr. Beaver had these children over to his house for a meal. And a conversation begins about the nature of Aslan, the king. Aslan, the lion. When Mr. Beaver, quote, tells Susan that Aslan is a great lion, Susan is surprised and she assumed Aslan was a man. She then tells Mr. Beaver, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Wouldn't we be nervous about meeting a lion? No? Well, most of us would. She asked Mr. Beaver, now this is the important question. She asked Mr. Beaver, is Aslan safe? I love this response. To which Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe but he's good. We are talking about a lion after all. We are talking about God after all. We are talking about the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords after all. So perhaps when these disciples, they started their day out, they were in awe of Jesus multiplying the bread and the fish, but they were terrified at the reality of Christ being king over the wind and the waves. They came to a deeper understanding of his authority They came to a deeper realization of his power. But also, what was Jesus trying to do? Was he trying to intimidate his disciples? No. He's trying to teach his disciples then and his followers today. What? That whatever storm you're going through, Jesus is greater. Jesus is bigger. And when we understand that the Lion of Judah is in control, then the Lion of Judah chases away all of those lesser, smaller fears. Spurgeon put it like this. The fear of God is the death 
of every other fear. Like a mighty lion, it chases all the other fears before it. Praise God that when we need Jesus to be the lamb who was slain for our sins, there is mercy for us. But praise God when we need Jesus, the lion of Judah, the risen, reigning, roaring king to be our power and our strength. He is that for us as well. So yes, the truth is, as we know, God, because he's God, is terrifying. Yet, I want you to hear this. I want you to understand this. I want you to embrace this. Yet, when we are embraced by God, there is no safer place in all of creation than being close to him. This is what it means to know God, to not only know God, but yes, to understand who he is as he's revealed himself in Christ. And that's what Jesus does in the next verse. To conclude this passage, we see here in verse 20 and 21, all eyes back on scripture, Jesus speaks. And as speaking, he reveals who he is. Verse 20 says, but he, Jesus said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. I'm gonna say that again. Do not be afraid. I'm gonna say it one more time. Do not be afraid. Verse 21 then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Here in this passage, there's not much dialogue. There's not much talking. I think that's intentional because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what is said is so important that God wants us to hear just that short phrase. And sometimes it's not the length of words that makes it powerful, but the substance of the words Jesus, as he's walking on water, as his disciples are frightened and afraid, he says, it is I. Now, in the original Greek, that's an important word structure. The original Greek says, ego eimi, it is I. Or, a literal wooden translation is, I am, I am. In the Gospel of John, this will be a constant theme. The Gospel of John highlights Jesus referring to himself as the I am. I am the bread of life, as we'll see in John 6. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. Over and over again, before Abraham was, Jesus says, I am. Not only talking about his present reality, but connecting himself with God the Father's deity. That's how God revealed himself to Moses and to God's people. He revealed himself by revealing a name. I am. So when we understand that God is I am, that means there was never a time where God was not, and there never will be a time where God ceases. He always is. He is the I am. Jesus says, I am with you. Don't be afraid. He's with us in the storms. He is with us, revealing his power, his sovereignty over the wind and the waves. But friends, don't miss the second miracle. Did you know there's two miracles in the story? A lot of people miss this. Ready? So they hear Jesus say, in the midst of the wind and the waves, in the midst of this miracle that is just completely shattering all their perceptions of Jesus, he says, it is I, do not be afraid. Your Bible says what? They received him. Because a lot of people don't. A lot of people can respect Jesus but they won't receive Jesus. A lot of people will make Jesus prominent, but they won't allow him to be preeminent. What does it say, friends? 
they received him in the boat, and then all of a sudden, even though they were two to three miles out, they arrive at Safe Harbor. That's a miracle. That's amazing. As if to say, for those of us that are rattled and shaken and overwhelmed by our fear, when you receive Jesus into your quote-unquote boat, into your life, he brings you safely home. He brings you back to Safe Harbor. This is who our God is. This is what our God does. And this is why this is going to be completely antithetical to what the culture may say. It might even be counterintuitive to how we believe. But there are benefits. There are positive effects of a God-centered fear. We get this? All right, so I want everybody, as much as we can, to try and pay attention because I'm going to try and extrapolate this out, reading a couple verses, helping us understand, okay, yes, there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Yet we're still called to fear the Lord. And what does that mean? So some of the positive effects of God-centered fear. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In fact, I once heard somebody say that the people that they're most afraid of are the people that aren't afraid of God. You get that? And I agree. Those that think they are God, those that think there is no God, man, that means they're an island unto themselves. Their morality is based on themselves. There is no justice, righteousness in the world. No, yeah, the Bible says the fear of the Lord, reverence and awe, respect and dignity, worth and honor is the beginning of knowledge, true knowledge. We could have more degrees than Fahrenheit. The Bible says if it's not based in the fear of the Lord, we don't have true lasting knowledge. So number one, not only the fear of God leads to wisdom, but the fear of God leads to salvation. Friends, I want you to hear this from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. Everyone pay attention, because this is absolutely 100% politically incorrect. And yet the person who many would attest is the most compassionate person, the kindest person, the most merciful and just person to ever walk the planet, Jesus Christ, he says this. Ready? Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those, meaning people, who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Jesus says, rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The truth is, some of us, when we hear grace, we come running. Some of us, though, it's not enough to be scared to death. We need to be scared to life. That there is a God, and it's not you. There is a judge, it's not you. There is one who is holy, and we know how jacked up and unholy we are. Jesus says, no, fear of God can lead to salvation. Not only fear of God can lead to salvation, fear of God can lead to repentance. The prophets would say this. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 30 said this, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. And the Bible says this. The prophets say this. Everyone ready? Repent and turn from your transgressions, let your, lest your sin be your ruin. God is saying, okay, repent, come back to me, return to me, turn from all that junk, all that garbage, all that stubbornness, selfishness, pride and sin, come back to me because your sin is going to be your ruin. 
So yes, a fear of God, a healthy fear of God leads us back to God. So here's the truth. Let's be honest, friends. Let's be honest. Okay. Why do many of us fear God? We don't fear God because he's bad, right? I hope not. We don't fear God because he's bad. No, he's good. He's the ultimate, final, forever, permanent, eternal good. No, why do we fear God? Because he's good. Because he's good and we know that we're not. That's why whenever I introduce myself to people and they look at me as a young guy, I don't wear a collar, right? And they find out I'm a preacher, I'm a pastor, what happens? All of a sudden they have something very, very pressing to do that way. They got somebody else they really got to talk to right now because the morality cop has showed up and I'm not allowed to say or do anything that might hurt your feelings or offend your God. No, this happens at church. Friends, it's happening right now, right? I mean, seriously, when the Bible's preached and when the, the authority of God is proclaimed, there's something in us that says, Woo, boy, I got to get out of this place. It's because God is good. So good, perfectly good, that it frightens us. But here's the truth. Here's the big takeaway. If you're taking notes, ready? Everybody ready? Here's the truth. Fear that does not take you to God will take you away from God. Fear that does not take you to God will take you away from God. So those are the positive effects of fear. But we know this, right? Friends, we get this. If the vertical's not healthy, then everything horizontal will be unhealthy as well. We believe that? We know that? Like, if we don't have a healthy vertical fear of God, don't be surprised when every aspect of our horizontal, relational, practical, financial life is unhealthy as well. So, when our jobs are not done for God's glory, they become our identity. This is why when some people get laid off from their work, they go into a deep spiral of depression. And I get it. I understand it. It's because you don't know who you are unless you do what you do. No, the truth is that when our money is not seen as a gift from God, it becomes idolatry. If we don't understand every single penny as a gift from him, even though we work, even though we strive, even though it's all from his hand. No, when we don't have a vertical, healthy fear of the God, then everything horizontal gets skewed, including our sex. When sex is not about giving and loving in the covenant of marriage, it becomes about what? Taking and abusing in the furnace of lust. Tragically, many of us know this because we've been there and we felt that hardship. No, there's negative effects of man-centered fear and that's what Jesus has come to distill. There are positive effects of placing God prominently in our lives, preeminently in our lives, but it's our fear of men and the world that Jesus comes and says to us, it is I, do not be afraid. For example, we know this, right? Fear shrinks our faith, does it not? Fear can make people look small and our circumstances loom large. Fear can make us seek from people only that which God can give to us. Fear not only shrinks our faith, fear is a straight up thief. Fear takes our thoughts captive, robs us of our joy, and steals our time. We were meant to worship God. And instead of worshiping God, we're worrying 
about the world. Fear is also a bully. How many of us hate bullies? Yet at the same time, we let this bully of fear run amok in our lives. Fear pushes God's faithfulness out and lets our feeble forgetfulness in. It overwhelms our senses so that we see things that are not there and we forget the one who is there. And who's the one? Jesus, with us in the storm. Fear also inflates our desire for control. When things get bad, some of us want to control everything. Fear makes us wish for control over things and people that were never in our control to begin with. Lastly, fear creates confusion. Flat out. Fear causes us to forget what we know and to lose sight of who we are. It causes us to trust the very people we should trust and to trust the people that we shouldn't. Fear causes us to run when we should stay and to stay when we should run. And that's why Jesus, in the midst of this storm, speaks to his disciples, then his followers today, it is I. Don't be afraid. But it's not just Jesus that says don't be afraid. We get this, right? The greatest commandment in all the Bible is about love. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But the most repeated command in all the Bible, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, is this. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. In fact, Jesus will say it again in John 14, verse 27. Listen to these beautiful promises, these encouraging promises. These can be an anchor in any storm we're in. Jesus says, peace I leave you. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Hallelujah. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. Not just Jesus, but Deuteronomy. Moses said this in Deuteronomy 31.6, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Isn't that great news? Isn't that the best of news? It's not just Jesus. It's not just Moses, but even Joshua. On the precipice of the promised land, as he's about to fight these battles, as he's about to enter into this, plant, this land promised to his people, God speaks now to Joshua. Have I not commanded you? Friends, listen to these words. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Why? For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Is this good news? How many of us believe this? All right, well, I need to keep reading more scriptures until all of us believe it. You're welcome. Get comfortable. Here we go. (laughs) Psalm 23. Psalm 23. Oh, we love Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of what? I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. One more. Not only Jesus, Moses, Joshua, the psalmists, the king, but even the prophets. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Hallelujah. Part of the reason I think this story resonates with so many people is not just to see Jesus walk on the waves, not just hear Jesus say, do not be afraid, but because we can relate to the image, can we not? 
I mean, life can feel like we're out in the boat pushing. Our hands are tired. Our bodies are fatigued. Our souls are hollow. And yet we have the oars in each hand and we just keep chugging along. Against not only the water, against not only the wind, against not only the waves, but sometimes even dealing with the people in the boat, we keep pushing, trying to get to that next destination. We're not even sure why anymore. We're not even sure where we're going. And yet we keep pushing. We keep pushing those oars. And then here comes Jesus. And I want you to hear this. He loves us enough to disrupt our meager attempts at finding purpose, peace, and power in this life by revealing his true authority. Jesus comes and says, stop rowing endlessly. Stop being afraid of every single wind that comes, every single wave that crashes, of the people surrounding you. Look at me. I'm bigger than the wind and the waves. And I'm the one telling you that it is I, your Savior, the one who will bleed and die on a cross so that you could live forever. Trust me. Let go of the oars. Let me into the ship and I will bring you safe to safe harbor. I will bring you safely into my Father's presence in heaven. Hallelujah. Forever. A lot of people will hear this and they'll say yes and amen and yet still choose the fear. Still choose the oars still choose the wind and the waves by themselves, an island unto themselves, without trusting and resting and relying on Christ. This is the tragedy. This is the true crossroads. You see, when we started our, our study, our teaching today, we talked about that beautiful poem, The Footprints in the Sand, about how Christ is walking next to us along the seashore through all of life's journeys, ups and downs, mountaintops and valleys, but the truth is, Jesus doesn't just carry us in the bad times. Friends, the true biblical truth is that on those footprints, there was only one set of footprints the entire time. And that doesn't mean because we were alone the entire time. That means what? Jesus was carrying us the whole time. Not just the bad days, but the good days. We have no idea how much his grace is sufficient for every breath. We have no idea how even now in the heavenlies, he's sending his angels to defend us and to fight for us. We have no idea how his sovereign grace keeps us close to him every single second. No, Jesus isn't walking beside us. Jesus isn't our co-pilot. He's carrying us. He's our savior, our friend, and our God. So friends, if you don't believe in Christ, we invite you to invite him into the boat so he can bring you to safe harbor. But for the disciples, for the followers, who the storms have become bigger than your Savior, would you remember how big he is and would you hear him say, it is I. Don't be afraid. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we prepare our hearts to come before you at the table, before we come to the bread and the cup, we want to come to you, our King, the God who is, the God who always will be, even as our life is a breath, even as our life is just a mere flicker. God, we surrender 
authority to the one who already has it. We open up our hands and our hearts to say, Jesus, I'm weary and worn and I'm tired of running. I'm tired of rowing. I'm tired of dealing with these storms on my own, in my own strength. Today, I return back. I return back to your grace where I can find forgiveness. I turn back to you as the lamb who was slain for my sin. But I also return back to you as the lion. The lion who deserves my respect and my awe. The lion who his power, his roar, can dispel and displace any of the fears in my life. So Father God, we ask for forgiveness. Right now, not just me, I hope. Holy Spirit, would you attend the proclamation of your gospel and the teaching of your word. Make people new and alive this morning. Friends, would you trust in Jesus? Would you welcome him into your boat, into your life? Receive him, not just as Savior, but also as God. And pray this simple prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I am a sinner in need of grace. I am filled with fear, and I need faith. Help me in the face of the storms of this life to believe in you, to trust you, to know that not only you're bigger than the storm, but you love me in the storm. And because of that, there's nothing to be afraid of. We love you, Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.